Welcome to the Weekly Squeak. This is your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. You can find information and previous episodes of the podcast at christianschiller.com slash podcast. I am currently in Australia. Uh, apologies for no show last week. Travel, time zone loss, conferences, I just did not quite find the time. And uh, I am in a co-working space in a phone booth, which gives a nice sound, but the door is extremely thin and extremely noisy, which is a shame. So there's a little bit of background noise, which I'm not entirely sure how I can get rid of it, short of telling people to shush for 20 minutes. I don't think it's going to happen. No interview this episode. I am recording a bunch more over the next few weeks, so there'll be some more soon. So this is just a roundup of the news, geeky news that caught my eye. And I've got quite an interesting selection. First up, two things on writing. One is not new at all. In fact, it's probably one of the oldest pieces of writing to have ever been featured on the Weekly Squeak, being Notes on Writing Weird Fiction by H.P. Lovecraft. I don't know when, exactly when he wrote this, but 1920-something. So, uh, yeah, pretty old. But uh, if you're interested in writing weird fiction, science fiction, horror, whatever it is now called or whatever has been called, this is a, a nice essay. And I, I, I know not everyone likes Lovecraft's writing. It can be a little unwieldy. He's not always a very modern writer. But uh, his ideas have sort of become part of canon and the mythos has become part of canon. So kind of goes alongside my recommendations for... Uh, Say, for example, Stephen King's on writing book in that uh, you may or may not like their work, but their advice as a moderately successful writer, um, Lovecraft posthumously, but still, uh, it can be useful to you. And, and some of the aspects I really like with his is he sets out these steps you should go through. And the first two are a synopsis of a scenario events in the order of absolute occurrence, and then a second synopsis of scenario events in the order of narration, which I find quite interesting um, and I'm going to certainly try that. I've been looking for an excuse to try a piece of software called Aeon Timeline on the Mac that also works quite well with Scrivener which is another piece of software common used for writing fiction on Mac. So I look forward to sort of trying this technique actually with that and seeing how I can apply it. Next was a post from Jessica Stillman on Inc.com, a Harvard linguist 13 simple tips for becoming a greater writer. I, I don't exactly know what sort of writer these tips are aimed at. Some I would probably recommend for technical writers, which is the field that I work in. Others maybe I wouldn't. But uh, here's some of my favourite ones. Um, let verbs be verbs, appear, not make an appearance. I guess removing some of those unwieldy, unnecessary words. Omit needless words, or weasel words as we're sometimes called. Big fan of this. And Actually, number 12 was my favourite. Read it aloud. I have found this very useful for some of the technical copy I work on. I was trying to create a video recently, a technical tutorial, and I found that reading it out loud, I suddenly discovered that it didn't really make a lot of sense. And actually, even when people read back your piece, they're kind of reading aloud in their head. So it made a lot of sense to me that this was a good idea. So I highly recommend it. Even if you think your content is very dry, it won't make a lot of difference, it actually really helps. So, two pieces of, uh, two articles there of advice for writers from very different authors and from very different kind of writing output and 
Maybe you'll find one useful, maybe the other, maybe both. Who knows? Next, I've sort of been following this story for a little while. Maybe I need to find someone to interview on this subject. But uh, Google had their Google Cloud Next conference recently, where they announced a lot of expanded partnerships with several open source businesses. Now, this is kind of in counter to AWS, who have been accused by a lot of large open source projects by strip mining their products or their projects just to profit and not really contributing anything back. In fact, probably taking away from open source projects. And Google, I guess, in, um, in response to this, and they have been vocal about this in the past, but they, I guess, put this as a front and foremost strategy, announced partnerships with Mongo, Confluent, Datastax, Elastic, InfluxData, Neo4j, and Redis, a handful of fairly large open source projects there, where they will uh, become, I guess, uh, first preferred providers for some of these projects that will be configured uh, to the most optimized level that these projects determine um, and generally just work much closer with the projects themselves instead of competing against them. I guess it remains to be seen how useful and successful this is for those companies and those projects um, because Google is still a business, they are still a business and uh, even if they're running on Google, these, these companies are not necessarily running their own managed services. So we will see exactly how this uh, works out. But still, uh, it's interesting. The lines have been drawn. Maybe people who care about open source will start to move towards Google Cloud and indeed Azure instead of AWS. And we'll see if it actually has an impact on uh, Amazon's bottom line, I guess. Speaking of open source, this is the second article. Actually, that article was also by Stephen J. Vaughan Nichols on uh, ZDNet. And so it's the second one. The Linux desktop is in trouble. Uh, this is in reference to a recent interview with Linux Torvalds, where he mentioned that Chromebooks and Android are the path towards the desktop. Now, this is somewhat controversial because they are big operating systems, but not fully open source, and both are mostly made by Google, which is problematic. <laughs> And I wrote about this subject a little while ago, about will Linux be the last viable proper desktop operating system because all the other vendors have kind of given up. Apple seems to be slowly losing interest in macOS. Microsoft is very much moving to a desktop as a service model or a SaaS model. So will Linux be the only option? Or indeed, Chrome OS and Android on desktop, which is sort of coming with some models of Android phone. And Strangely, uh, Linus blames this on Linux uh, fragmentation, um, which is kind of the point of Linux, but it's always been one of the biggest barriers to adoption with any open source project, because there's too many options for the general consumer. Uh, and you have competing windowing standards, you have competing installation standards, you have competing everything standards. So people who are beginners don't really know where to start, and they might uh, search on a search engine for a solution, and they get 10 different answers depending on the OS, and they're more confused, so it's a bit of a barrier. Whereas Chrome OS, Android OS obviously have less options, but they're still Linux under the core. So what do we do about that? Do we, do we standardize? Do we focus on using just one standard? Will open source and Linux vendors even want to do that? Um, does it continue just to be a minority hobbyists? Desktop OS, we have to be specific here, desktop OS, or what? And this is actually something I'd really love to hear your feedback, and I'll give you some details about how to give me feedback later on. I'd like to hear 
uh, your opinions on the best approach for mainstream, semi-mainstream even, adoption of Linux on a desktop. Not open source, but uh, an alternative, shall we say. Opera. Opera recently introduced their new version, Reborn 3. I have, have actually been an Opera user for some time. I quite like Opera. It's cross-platform. It looks quite good. It looks quite native on most of the platforms it's on. It has built-in ad blocking, built-in VPN. I kind of like the underdog. It's European. I don't know. I like it. Um, and it is now the first desktop browser with Web3, which is not strictly true. Brave actually has had this, I think, for some time. I'd have to double check this. Meaning it has a Web3 wallet built in for interacting with dApps or blockchain apps or Ethereum applications or whatever you want to refer to them as. It's had this on the Android version for some time and now is out on the desktop version. I haven't been able to get it to work yet, which is somewhat disappointing. Otherwise, I'd report back on how it worked, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, because I need to write an article on that as well. Also, the interface has been updated. It's, uh, it's stripped back. It's kind of odd, actually. They've got rid of a lot of the, the Chrome, as it's called, on the browser. And it's a little almost a little disconcerting because there's so little interface. Uh, but I quite like it, actually. Uh, it continues to impress me. I wish the iOS versions of Opera were better. They're a little lacking. I guess it's the sort of sandbox of, uh, of Apple that's the problem. But uh, maybe that will improve over time. Not sure. But um, if you are looking for a new browser and you would like to break the stranglehold of Chrome, and Chrome is fast becoming the Internet Explorer of, uh, of the modern era, kind of going against Internet standards, etc. And I was a big fan of Safari for a while for a similar reason. A lot of people accuse me of being Apple fanboys. Actually, no, just Chrome is just uh, changing too much. Uh, there's sites that only work in Chrome, which is not the way the internet is supposed to be. And that kind of bugs me. And um, with pretty much every browser now moving to Chromium engines, apart from uh, Firefox and Safari, it's a little concerning. I mean, even Opera is basically Chromium too, I think. And so it's brave now. Chromium and Chrome are not the same thing, but still, uh, quite closely related. <laughs> so yeah, if you're looking for an alternative and you want to join the, I think, the 1% of internet users, which is still, which is still a fairly large number, then uh, have a look at the latest version of Opera. It might surprise you. Rounding off the show with two kind of other content items. This is an article on bbc.com from Catherine B. Creedy, actually, um, on uh, have <laughs> Why airlines make flights longer on purpose? I don't know if this is something you've thought about. I have often felt this, like this myself, where I'm feeling like there's unnecessary delays, especially for short flights. I mean, do they really need to be? And apparently this is somewhat intentional, and it has got bigger. This uh, It's actually got a, a proper name. Padding is what airlines call it, or schedule creep, what other people call it. So it's the extra time that airlines allow themselves to fly from A to B. And this is added because flights were consistently late. And I think this is because most airports these days are at maximum capacity, if not more. Everything is back-to-back. -back. So if there's a slight delay, then everything kind of suffers. And this is introduced to make it look like flights are actually flying on time. And I've seen other things they do. For example, I don't know if this is an international thing or just in Europe, but a plane counts as having left on time if the door is closed on time which is why you might have got on a plane and then sat there with the door closed, wondering why you even bothered getting on the plane, because there are reasons for this. And this is fine. I guess, you know, we want 
cheap fares, etc. So there have to be some compromises. But according to uh, Captain Michael Bider, president of the Aviation Consultancy ATH Group, uh, in the in the uh, article, this is this has some other negative effects. So that airlines are spending so much on kind of trying to have this appearance of being on time and kind of rushing that they're not spending time on other maybe more important things. So for example, they they could save time and money on uh, reducing fuel burn because the padding, the waiting time, also costs a lot of fuel, which also calls, causes uh, noise, CO2, um, et cetera, et cetera, in the local area. So there's some other negative knock-on effects of this that uh, are not necessarily noticed by everybody, but um, maybe if the airlines focused on improving other things, they would get that punctuality without having to have all these other negative side effects and just annoying people, I guess. There are, of course, some airlines and some airports have invested more time in punctuality. Uh, they specifically point out Delta in this article. Um, I mean, uh, airlines and airports have to work together, so it's sometimes hard to know quite what one can do if the other isn't working uh, to facilitate this. And there are certain airlines that are very guilty of just forcing airports to bend to their will. And actually, uh, an airplane can be up to 15 minutes late before it's considered late. This is in the US, so I'd imagine it's somewhat similar the world over. And if you think an hour and a half flight, for example, 15 minutes is a fairly significant chunk of that. So, um, yeah, airplanes, eh? <laughs> it's always kind of an interesting uh, group of opinions on, on how they should run, and especially now when there's so many at pretty low prices. And finally, something a little different from me, an article by Michael Easter on Outside Online. I, I don't know, uh, the past week I haven't been sleeping so well, it's probably more realistically just to do with the, the travel, the time zone change, the, the weather change, a whole bunch of things. But I, I started kind of thinking, getting, getting paranoid about various health things, and this article popped up that was somewhat timely for that, called, Are You Overdosing on Caffeine? And caffeine is one of these, uh, these, these things that, depending who you speak to and depending the report of the month, fluctuates between being okay for you, between being good for you, between being bad for you, so it's always hard to know exactly. I did a little bit of research, and I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of caffeine about these days. And the thing that surprised me the most in reading this and reading around the subject was that uh, caffeine has a very high half-life. So if you drink some coffee at 3 p.m., for example, which is somewhat common, that's a 3 p.m. slump, a significant amount, a significant amount to spoil your sleep can stay in your body up until 10 or 11 p.m. Uh, and that can be problematic. So it's a, I guess it's more that aspect of not drinking coffee too late I find this interesting too because, especially in certain European cultures, um, there's a lot who drink coffee very late and I wonder how they manage to sleep. I don't know if the body becomes resistant to it, which is a whole other concern in my mind, is that I found myself needing more coffee than I used to. And this is always the problem with addictive substances, of course. They make you feel good, they provide a buzz, but then the more your body acclimatizes to them, the more you need, the more you consume, and you get stuck in this cycle. The article also covers some of the benefits of giving up caffeine, reduced anxiety, reduced tension, reduced stress, um, but like many other addictive substances, it's quite hard to give up, of course. Um, 
And this is something I've been thinking about trying it. And of course, caffeine is one of these things because we often have it to wake us up, and the effect of it waking us up is very short-lived. So you're going to feel pretty bad and pretty exhausted all the time when you first try to give it up. But the author claims that after a while, he actually felt better. And because you get better sleep, you don't need such a big pick-me-up, etc., etc. So it's this kind of cycle that should improve over time. But in the short term, of course, you're going to feel terrible. I have tried decaf coffee before because I actually quite like the taste of coffee. This is a problem I have with alcohol too, that I want to give it up, but alcohol just is interesting in taste as well. There's so many varieties of taste. And you really only get alcohol with beers, for example, um, somewhat limited selection. And I found decaf coffee when I tried it the first time around didn't taste very good, but I would imagine it's got a lot better now. So I'd be interested in trying again to see if I can still get that um, satisfaction on the taste without having the, the, the buzz, the, the, the too much buzz, I guess, over time. So I may try this uh, in the next few weeks and see how I go. And that was my roundup of content for the week. Apologies for the noise, apologies for the odd microphone. It's weird. I tried this microphone. It's a new uh, Lavalier, like a microphone that fits on your, your shirt. But I tried it when I recorded some video and it sounded okay. But in this room, it's sounding rather thin for some reason. But um, I apologize for that. I thought it would be better than the internal microphone. Maybe not. And the, the noise, this phone booth with the incredibly leaky door, <laughs> which is somewhat ironic. Anyway, um, a few updates from me. I've got a couple of articles that you can see on kristenschiller.com slash writing. Uh, I had a, a profile about to be published with Cata Containers, a new container format. If you're interested in containers and you're looking for an alternative to something like Docker. And a couple more things coming up soon. Our ethics in tech newsletter is slightly delayed because my co-writer was sick for a little while. And then of course I started traveling. So that delayed us somewhat, but we should be getting started with that in the next week or so. And I am also editing the first episode of The Enthusiastic Amateur very soon. And um, yeah, I've been slowly overhauling my website. I'm a little behind all these things because it's just been busy. Um, also working on my second book. I got a fair chunk of writing done on the plane to Australia, which was very useful. Good time to get stuff like that done. So that's making some good progress. I may have some updates on that after Easter. I might hopefully get a good chunk of writing done then. And finally, in updates, events. So EdCon in Sydney was done. That was fun. I appeared on a panel, which worked quite well. A little bit of a break from me until May, and then I have a lot coming up in May. I'm going to be speaking at Latitude 59 in Tallinn, in Estonia. And then I'm going to be at KubeCon in Barcelona, and then at CodeGarden in Denmark, and a whole bunch more. So keep an eye on christianchiller.com slash events. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, give me feedback on wherever you heard the show. Tweet at me at Chris Chinch. Send me an email. You can find contact details on the website and much more. So, yes, once again, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Yeah.